Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amir Sayyad Abdi, the host of the channel. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Professor Fabio uh, Prosecoli about his book, Food, which was published in 2019 by the MIT Press, which is affiliated with Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Fabio is a professor in the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies, the New York University Steinhardt. Fabio, thanks for accepting my invitation and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, To start off, uh, could you please tell us a bit about your uh, personal and research background, Fabio? Yes. So I didn't start as an academic uh, for a few years. Well, after working in movies and other stuff, uh, I wrote about international affairs, covering especially... um, Muslim topics uh, from Turkey all the way to the Philippines. And I did that for a few years. Then slowly I started writing about food, which has always been an interest of mine. And uh, an Italian food and and wine magazine ended up um, asking me to move to New York and become their correspondent back in 98. And I worked for them for more than 10 years. And then When I was in New York, I started um, getting in touch with the academics working on food, especially at NYU, where I ended up teaching uh, many years later. And I realized that I was very interested in that approach. So I decided to go back to school, got my doctorate, and, and, you know, I started writing books and articles, started teaching. Uh, I worked at the new school where I launched the food studies program. And now I am at NYU in the nutrition and food studies department. Thank you, Fabio. Um, There is often a story behind every book, right? Uh, What's the story behind yours? How did this book come about? Well, it it was actually on the initiative of the MIT Press. Uh, They have this amazing series called Essential Knowledge. These are small books 
uh, with a you know good content written by researchers, experts, academics, but for the general public. And they wanted to have something about food. So they got in touch with me. We started talking with the uh, with the series editor, and you know it's difficult to do just. I mean, what do you start? Food. You know, they didn't know exactly what the uh, the angle could be, or what the focus could be. So I decided to make it sort of an introduction to food systems uh, for the general public. You know, for consumers who wants to be more than consumers and maybe become citizens understand more what are the the stakes, uh, what are the different players, and what their role can be. And after I finished the book, you know, we were talking with the the publisher about the title, and they decided to just go with food, Uh, because it's also part of a series where every book has got, you know, one topic, so it also uh, fits there. And it's been a pleasure writing it because um, I was really writing with the general public in mind. So I used all my academic research and experience, but I was using the style that I had developed as a food writer, as a journalist. And it was um, a, a great experience uh, that I think is going to repeat itself uh, also in the future. It's a great experience reading it too, Fabio. <laughs> oh, thank um, you. One of the things you discuss early on in the book is uh, the notion of eating local. Uh, what does eating local mean anyway in our increasingly uh, globalized world? And what are some of the structures and dynamics around eating local. I mean, if we always buy the bread from the bakery in our neighborhood, or if we buy our meat from the local butchery, are we eating local? Yes, exactly. That's one of the big uh, issues in contemporary food system, that even experiences that we might perceive as local are actually global. As you mentioned, we go to the bakery next door and we get bread. Where does that wheat come from? Where do the ingredients come from? Where do the people working in the bakery come from? Uh, What sort of regulation allowed certain grains and not others to get to where you live? And so on and so forth. So I think the the perception of the local is um, somehow contextual, of course, you know, you can tell when produce that is grown is actually local when it comes from, you know, places that are near to you. But when it comes to manufactured products, that becomes a little more uh, complicated. I mean, the coffee that you buy at the roaster down the street, it's local in the sense that you also create a local connection within a specific community but the coffee ends up coming from very different places. So it's, it's a little complicated, but what's interesting to me is that in the past 
couple of decades, there is sort of the idea that local is inherently better, also ethically inherently better, environmentally better. And it's a little more complicated than that. You know, what if you want to grow, I don't know, grapes in the, in the desert of Nevada, because that's where you live, right? Yes, you would have local food, but how about the water uh, that would be necessary? How about all the, the fertilizers and to make the, the land uh, work for you? And also, local is not inherently more democratic in a way. It all depends on the governance of the local food system. Who has more power? Who are the players? How do they interact with each other? So in the book, I like to complicate a little bit this idea of eating local. Um, and another important aspect when it comes to food and food studies uh, and food system is uh, health and nutrition, which you uh, assign a chapter to in your book. Uh, what would you say are the most pressing issues with regard to food and health? Ooh, that's, that's a very <laughs> complicated and... General question, question I know, yes. Yes, yes. It's, um, I, I think, you know... It's also very much, let's say, contextual because it depends on where you are, uh, what sort of food you have access to, uh, and what you can eat, what you can afford. So one of the problems that probably have become more urgent, it's growing inequalities. Um between those who can afford certain things and those who can't, which has an immediate impact on health and nutrition, of course. And I think the COVID crisis has made these tensions even more uh, visible, even heavier than they, uh, they were before. Uh, where I am, for instance, in the US, a problem is availability of accessible and affordable fresh food. It's much cheaper to buy mass-produced food or fast food uh, in many cases. Also because the people working to produce those items are paid very little. And then, you know, they end up accessing food banks or other sorts of support. So in a way, the taxpayers end up subsidizing uh, this industrial production. So in a way, I don't think that the issues of health and nutrition can be completely separated from the, the governance of the food system and environmental issues connected with it. Uh, but my favorite chapter uh, of the book is the one on environment and sustainability. Mm. And uh, you introduce food waste as a sort of an entry point into your discussion on environment and sustainability. Why is that? Why is food waste you know, so important when it comes to uh, the issue of environment and sustainability in food systems? Uh, precisely, as you said, it's an entry point. It's something that I assume most readers would experience 
to, to a certain extent. You know, all of us has got a wilting piece of lettuce in the fridge or some cheese that has been molding. Um, and I thought, and that's for the book in general, it's a good idea to start from experiences that the readers might be familiar with. So I started from there to then go into issues of, for instance, food loss um, along different supply chains in the food system in general. You know, lots of food uh, gets lost on the fields or during transportation or because of um, bad warehousing. Um, but these are aspects of the food loss in our system that readers might not directly be exposed to. So in a way to, to attract their attention in a way and take them to this more complicated aspects of the issues, I decided to go through food, uh, through the food waste that each of us is responsible for. Although, you know, in the large um, scheme of things, what consumers waste, yes, it is a lot, but it's never as much as what is lost before the food gets into their fridge. And uh, here's another general question, Fabio, but what's the role of technology in all this? I, I, that's also something that I'm really passionate about because at least in the sort of food movement circles here in the U.S., very often you hear, I wouldn't say luddite tones, but a sort of um, lack of... Um, trust in technology. Let's put it like that. And with good reasons. I mean, we know that technology can be responsible for many damages uh, at the environmental level, at the social level, at the political level. But I do believe that technology has been crucial to the development of human food production since its beginning. Think about, I don't know, agricultural tools, or I don't know, think about uh, a spoon or, or a knife. You know, th those are technology, of course, different from the technologies we use today. But, you know, when new, uh, I don't know, plows were introduced in Europe in the 13th, 14th century, those were, you know, new technologies or new kind of mills. And now our New technology is mostly about the Internet of Things, blockchain, uh, computer systems, the cloud, which is something that it's not tangible. And I think for that can be a little scarier, also because we hear so much about, you know, hacking and uh, the damages of social media and whatnot. But at the same time, those tools could be used to improve the food system, even in terms of sustainability. Um, I don't know. There might be systems to facilitate irrigations or to control the presence of pests or to communicate dangers with the weather and so on and so forth. I think what's really important is not so much 
the technology per se, but who owns the technology? we have a global system based on pay- patents, which makes sense because it ensures income for inventors and creators and innovators. But at the same time, uh, it excludes uh, large uh, segments of the human population from accessing this technology or from accessing the way they would need it or they would uh, like it in a way. Some sometimes even these good innovations are sort of imposed onto them, you know, from large uh, companies. So I think that's something that we need to think about. You know, that one of the big technological issues these days is GMOs. Um, there is a lot of pushback. You know, the scientists continue saying that there is no proof that GMOs are bad for humans, but at the same time, um, there is a lot of mistrust. Beyond this, we miss the whole issues of ownership of genetic material. Who owns it? Who makes money? What does it mean, for instance, for agrobiodiversity? What does it mean for you know, for the environment. So once again, you know, we go to the governance, political aspects of the food system, even when we're talking about technology. And while we are on the subject of, you know, having access to uh, certain resources, um, I want to talk about a bit of, uh, uh, about food insecurity which is uh, oftentimes looked at as an economic issue or a social issue. But uh, as you argue in the book, it is also deeply political, right? Yes, because um, the way the food system is structured depends on political decisions. You know, what regulations are implemented, uh, what laws are in the book, what people can do or cannot do. And in many political systems, that depends on the cloud that certain groups can have, for instance, on lawmakers. Um, Here in the U.S., we have a very uh, well-oiled lobbying system. So food industries have access to lawmakers and they uh, invest in them, they donate for their campaigns and the lobbyists uh, know how to push certain uh, agendas. And I think that's very important because when we look at the, the problems in the food system, very often, you know, we take the position that we can make changes by voting with our wallet. Basically, if we don't like a product, if we don't like how a company um, act, we can decide not to buy that product and the company will have to change either the product or their behavior, which is true in many cases, but those changes do not go to the structural issues underlying um, phenomenon that we see in, in the food system, the distribution, access, um, safety networks. Um, so very often we look at what we can do as individuals, as consumers in a way, but we forget that we're also citizens. 
citizens that can vote, citizens that can take part in all sorts of local, regional, national, even international initiatives, people that can get organized and create other kinds of lobbying to uh, pressure lawmakers and so on. So for me, this, this putting together our identity as consumers and as citizens is really fundamental if we hope to uh, make any changes in the food systems. And I think, you know, COVID has really showed us, not that it doesn't work because it's working precisely the way it was designed for, which is for efficiency, quantity, and profit, but it doesn't work for everybody. And even the people for whom it normally works have seen that it's, there, there are issues, there are weak nodes. You know, we all have been looking for flour that didn't, didn't arrive to stores. Here in the US, the meat industry was hit because many workers were sick. Um, the farming industry was also hit because of the same reasons. And also um, suddenly it was more difficult for migrants to come into the country. So these are large st- structural issues that cannot be solved or even addressed by the single consumers. They need to be tackled uh, by community, by citizens that get together. Um, so most books on food nowadays, um, or at least the ones that I have come across, have a final chapter that deals uh, in some ways with the future of food. And your book is not an exception in this regard, Fabio. The, the title of your concluding chapter is actually, What Happens Next? And that is exactly my question. What happens next? Fabio. Yeah. Um, keep in mind that I wrote this book before COVID. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> lots of things have changed, but overall, I think, I don't know. Now, looking at where we are, what comes next, I think it's the need to look at um, the excessive efficiency of the system in a way, you know, the fact that it's all organized in just in time, you know, to, to reduce costs, to increase uh, profits. But when even one of those links doesn't work and with any kind of shock like um, COVID or weather or God knows what, you know, the, this lean character, this hyper-efficient character of many supply chains doesn't work. So probably we have to go back and and add some redundancy uh, to our systems. Maybe it, it might not be the most efficient way to butcher animals to go back to smaller uh, slaughterhouses, but it would guarantee a better distribution of meat in case, you know, the, the large plants uh, run into problems. Um, and also, I think the, the, the fact that COVID is creating huge um, supply chain issues 
has made people more aware of the extent of globalization. Maybe not so much for the ingredients, but for the whole supply chains, for machinery, for oil, for transportation. There are so many, let's say, non-food aspects in the food system that have been impacted by, by the pandemic and what's happening these days that people that before didn't even think about those issues suddenly are forced to. And I think one of the aspects of the future probably will be this wider awareness of issues in the food systems than that before, you know, were not so visible. Hopefully it's, you know, it won't be dramatic and it would it, it won't be because of new shocks. But if there is one moment where changes can be made, this could be it in a way. And it's something that we have to keep in mind. And, and it's not just about COVID. As I said, it's about climate change, for instance. You know, we have more and more uh, very uh, destructive uh, weather events. Agriculture has a huge impact on climate change. We'll see what happens. That you know, the younger generation probably is much more aware than we were about these issues. Yeah, definitely. And I think that will bring changes um, in the future. But at the same time, you know, they're also the ones that keep on buying, you know, cell phones and using bitcoins for which, you know, lots of energy needs to be used to run um, uh, servers and, and whatnot. So we'll see what, what happens there. Yeah. Hopefully something good. <laughs> Hopefully something uh, good. Yes, there's obviously a lot more in the book, and I encourage listeners to pick up a copy. But before we wrap up the interview, I'd like to ask whether uh, you're working on something right now, Fabio, or are you thinking about doing research on a particular topic in the near future? Yes, I'm working on two projects right now. Actually, let's let's make it three. Uh, the 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 next one, really almost done, we're working on the proof, is a book uh, that is going to be about food identity and politics. And in particularly, I'll be looking at how uh, food is used as an ideological tool in contemporary politics. I'm looking at, you know, the different populist movements, but also, you know, uh, food sovereignty movements, what it means when food gets entangled in, in this sort of uh, large political issues. And I'm looking at it really from a global point of view, because I do believe that the food system is becoming more and more global. And so what happens in the US cannot be completely separated from what happens in China or in India or in Brazil. So that's the, the, the project that it's almost done. It's also a book for the general public. So once again, I have used all my research, but I've tried to write and to organize the material in a way that it's very accessible um, to anybody who's interested in the topic, not necessarily um, 
other academics. You know, we tend to write for other academics, especially when, you know, we're working up um, the sort of the, uh, where we're trying to do our career, right? Mm. I'm lucky enough to be a full professor, which allows me more independence. And I think, you know, I can embrace more, I think the duty that we have as scholars, as researchers, as academics to um, distribute our knowledge and make it relevant for for the communities where we are. So I'm really enjoying writing in this style. Uh, My second project is based on a three-year grant that was given to me by the uh, Poland Science Center, which is the National Research Center for for Poland. Um, And it's going to be on the... um, Revaluation of local traditional uh, foods in Poland. So I've been going there quite often uh, to do ethnographic work mostly and to meet people and to interview people, to spend time there, getting to understand the place, trying to learn the language, which oof, it's, it's <laughs> not easy. And to this day, yeah, uh, my Polish, it's quite ridiculous, but I've, I've, now I can follow a conversation, I can ask questions, and you know, it's, it's, it makes work much easier. And the third topic I work on, um, it's food and design. Um, so how design can contribute to improve our relationship with food and to improve the food system. So already in 2019, I collaborated with the Victorian Albert Museum in London for an exhibition uh, called Food Bigger Than a Plate. And we're trying to bring the exhibition here in New York. It's not official yet, so I cannot say more than this, but I'll be um, consulting curator for, for that exhibition. I'm working also on an exhibition on food and fashion here in New York, actual, actual fashion and food. And in Italy, I'm working on an exhibition on Italians and food. And I'm in charge of one section of the exhibition that is precisely about the future. Uh, and so design technology are front and center there. And I'm going to write a couple of essays on the topic for the catalog of the exhibition. So you've been busy, Fabio. <laughs> uh, uh, those are <laughs> too many projects, but uh, that, that they are all equally interesting and exciting. And I can't wait to uh, read them or uh, in terms of that exhibition to see, see it uh, whenever they come out. Um, do you have any further comments? Anything you want to add, Fabio? Um, again, you know, out of this conversation, I think it's uh, what I would like that it comes out is how important it is to communicate in an accessible way, mm. even as scholars. Uh, I don't think that using obscure language is always necessary. Sometimes it is, sometimes it is because you're dealing with issues and topics and theories and methods that require precision precision and rigor. 
but we have to remember that we're also part of you know larger communities and learning how to speak different languages which can be an article on a magazine or an exhibition or a book for the general public. I think it's really important. And I think this is going to be the direction of my work, whatever the topics will be, but it's going to be the direction of my work in the next few years. Yes. Um, Thank you, Fabio, for writing such a book and for writing it so accessibly. Uh, I really enjoyed reading it. And thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking with me today and sharing your insight and your uh, fantastic work with our listeners. It's what a, it was an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good evening. You too.